Ranieri and Co. This episode contains language that may be offensive to some listeners. Hackers in Australia were getting itchy feet, and now, armed with a modem and a computer, they had the ability to go anywhere, anywhere in the world. By Melbourne Hackers. Melbourne Hackers. And uh, still not known anymore. It was by Hackers were experimenting with something new, a method of automatically tapping into multiple computers with one program. And with this, Melbourne Hackers were about to squirm their way onto the world stage. The author or authors of the wankworm have never been found or publicly outed. When we went to the States, we got this question everywhere we went about wankworm. Last episode, we heard how the ability to connect computers for the first time opened up a whole new world. One which was still unexplored, its limits not yet defined. Friendships based on mutual interest spawned across the globe. We knew people all around the world and and you'd come back and you'd go, I just got coke, I just got coke. And because the bulletin boards, which were the precursor to today's chat rooms, were text only, hackers devised a new language called Leetspeak. It became the jargon of the computer literate. In the words of one hacker we spoke to, this is how you spoke nerd. Skeeve Stevens used it, and still does. It's a way of trying to just confuse normal people reading things. It looks cool. You know, so you replace E's with threes. Hey, my number plate of my car is SK33VE. <laughs> I've just realised my number plate is Leetspeak. Oh, God. Um, our favourite time of the day is 1.37 in the afternoon because in 24 hours, it's 1.337, which is Leet. You know, right? Leet is limited to ASCII code, which is basically computer text. And as well as numbers replaced by letters, there's ASCII code arranged to resemble letters. For example, forward slash, hyphen, backslash, looks like the capital letter A. Microsoft even tried to explain this new language by publishing the parent's primer to computer slang. It describes words like N00B, noob, refers to a newbie, someone new to Leetspeak, and could be an insult or a term of affection. You get the idea. The substitution of letters by numbers and symbols is only limited by the Leetspeaker's creativity. It's more of a written than spoken, you can't speak it. The first person I heard start saying, lol, I wanted to smack him, you know what I mean? Like you sit there and you're like, no, what? And then they're like, ha ha ha, ruffle. And you're like, no, no, no. You didn't just say roll on the floor laughing out loud, did you? And you're like, oh no. And then if you wanted to get really sophisticated, there are things like ruffle copters, lines of ASCII characters. Forward space, enter, forward space, hyphen, 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 enter, forward slash, space bar, space bar, space bar which looks like a helicopter. Now we're entering the next level, the world of ASCII art. And in 1989, when staff at NASA logged into their computers, they were greeted with 10 lines of characters made up of forward slashes, backslashes and underscores in the shape of four block letters. W-A-N-K. And underneath this word was a message. Your system has been officially wanked. If you haven't heard that Australian term before, you better look it up. 
Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. Welcome to Motherload, a Ranierian co-production. I'm Greg Muller. This podcast series looks at the beginnings of computer hacking from an unlikely epicentre, Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne's my hometown, and I'm only now realising the full extent of what was going on just a few suburbs away, and it's blowing my mind. This was still a world of dial-up modems and bulletin boards, hacking into universities to access the outside world. There was still no public internet access, but hackers were upgrading their skills and learning to do more with the technology. A whole subculture was taking off, and most of us were completely unaware. But not for long. Loading episode two, you've been wanked. About 40 years ago, computer engineers in the US were starting to play with what became known as worms, self-replicating programs which attack computer after computer, network after network. John Schock is credited for creating the first one in 1979. John was a researcher at the company famous for inventing the Xerox photocopier. They became known as Zerpark worms, The program John wrote searched for new machines to send its host number to. When an idle machine is found, the program boots it up and sends a copy of itself to the new machine. Then all these worms on different computers communicate with each other, and every one has a list of all the other worms. You see how it moves. These worms did nothing but spread. They were an experiment, but they didn't stay in the lab for long. My name's Jeff Houston. I'm the Chief Scientist at uh, APNIC, the Asia-Pacific Network Information Centre. We're the bunch of folk that hand out IP addresses around the Asia-Pacific region. Now, you're in the Internet Hall of Fame. I guess I am, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why? Um, I suppose I've been around the Internet for quite some time. I I was working at the universities in the 1980s. You know, it was a hot topic in the 1980s. I got kind of in the right seat at the right time. After the Zerpark worm, hackers soon figured out how to write a computer worm and send it out into the world. These were the forerunner to computer viruses. 1988 was the first of the major incidents worldwide because on this sort of growing internet, um, a young enthusiast on the US East Coast Robert Tappan Morris launched an astonishingly brilliant worm and he exploited this fantastic approach that oddly enough is exploited by viruses. See in a virus, data and and, and instructions, you can't tell, it's all just chemical strings. And in fact, for the most of the time, most of the virus is just protein chains, except when it's inside a cell where part of that protein chain becomes RNA and the RNA becomes instruction and the cell creates new new things. After more than two years living in a global pandemic, this is a familiar scenario. So computers are much the same. Strings of ones and zeros in data and strings of ones and zeros that constitute a program 
are the same thing. It's just strings of ones and zeros. And the whole thing is to fool the computer to run your data as code. And so Robert Morris did this really neat hack that only worked on Sun workstations, where he basically forced a buffer overflow on a message, which caused the receiving machine to execute Robert's code. If you're like me, you're thinking, what's buffer overflow? Well, imagine you're jamming too many table tennis balls into a suitcase and trying to close the lid. A few fall out and drop into other bags, replacing what was in there. It's a program which sends so much data to the buffer section of a computer, it overflows into other memory locations and overwrites that section of the machine. Robert's code then said, aha, I'm in control, and started to replicate itself. Sound familiar, virus-wise? And then started infecting everything around him and kept on going and going and going um, at astonishing speed. Took over the internet in a matter of hours and got everyone all hot and hot and fluffy at the time. Jeff's talking about the internet in the US. The internet as we know it now hadn't arrived in Australia yet. It wouldn't happen until June 1989. The Morris Worm was released on November 2nd, 1988. It's now considered to be the first large-scale malware attack, that is, software designed to damage other computers. Now, in some ways it was a great piece of computer science, in some ways it was kind of disturbing that everyone was running Sun workstations, and others saw it as a magnificent opportunity to gain headlines, which you kind of got to worry about in some ways because dear old Robert Tappan Morris did get pursued vigorously by the FBI. The Morris Worm was the first time that the world really realized the power, both for good and bad, of computer networks. So it was a significant historic moment. I tracked down one of the first journalists to cover this beat. He wrote extensively about the Morris Worm at the time. My name is John Markoff. I'm a retired reporter, uh, science and technology writer for the New York Times. I came to the New York Times um, from Silicon Valley. John started this round before most people had ever used a personal computer, let alone knew anything about internet security. You know, there was a generation of young kids who came of age with personal computers and modems and computer networks. You know, suburban life, there wasn't a lot of adventure. And all of a sudden, these kids could find a place to have an adventure and, you know, have danger in a virtual sense. And it was John's articles which ultimately led to the prosecution of Robert Morris. This is how the 10 o'clock news on Boston's WGBH-TV covered the story. Life in the modern world has a new anxiety these days. Just as we've become totally dependent on our computers, they're being stalked by saboteurs. Yeah, so the, the Morris worm was a really significant moment, looking back from his, a historical point, because um, in November of 1988, most Americans and most people in the world didn't know what a computer network was. They didn't know what the internet was. The internet had been launched in 1987, and uh, so it was only a year old uh, as an entity. It came to Australia two years later. Until then, people connected to overseas computers using modems via the telephone system. And the story about Robert Tappan Morris really sort of grabbed the public attention because he was the son of the chief scientist of the National Security Agency. So that made a much more dramatic story. He wrote a program that was supposed to hide itself in the then very small computer network, which was composed of about 50,000 computers, and never be found. It was, a, it was what, what is now called a hack. It was then called a hack as well. 
and he made a programming error. And so as a result, it largely, it was like a huge traffic jam for the network. But because people didn't know what uh, networks were, in those first couple of days, it was an, uh, an object of great alarm. I think in the first day's story, the Washington Post had seven reporters on the byline. The, the words uh, cyber war was not even a word then, but they, they thought there might be a cyber attack or an electronic attack on the, the, this, what was then largely thought of as a military network still. And so it got a lot of attention. Robert Morris was 25 when he became the first person convicted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in the US. And his worm was the first to have real-world impact, bringing down 10% of the internet in the country. I did not go to jail, served community service, and then went on to become a very successful, uh, a successful MIT professor. Morris was sentenced to three years of probation, 400 hours of community service, and a fine of $10,050. He appealed on the grounds his motive was to demonstrate security vulnerabilities in the network. You might remember from our last episode, Steve Stevens used a similar argument a few years later in Australia, with similar success. And like Steve, Robert's conviction wasn't too damaging to his career. Well, he's a venture capitalist now, but he was also an entrepreneur, so um, it was a nice outcome. Morris apologised in 2008, saying he'd sought to estimate the internet's size not cause harm. Clifford Stoll from Harvard University and author of the seminal book on hacking the cuckoo's egg estimated the total economic impact of the Morris worm was up to $10 million. This was an important moment in the history of computer hacking. In Silicon Valley's Computer History Museum, there's a three and a half inch floppy disk in a glass case. It holds the Morris worm's 99 lines of source code. It's famous. One month after the Morris worm, a few days before Christmas 1988, another worm was released. This one infected computers on the NASA network. It was a DECnet worm. That is, it used one of the early network protocols to connect two computers. One of the first peer-to-peer -peer networks, it allowed computers to connect and communicate. The worm sent a file called hi.com to all users of a particular network and connecting networks. It read, Hi, how are you? I had a hard time preparing all the presents. It isn't quite an easy job. Get the terrible rainbow guns, tanks and spaceships up here at the North Pole. It was a message from Father Christmas, although originating from Switzerland and not the North Pole. But now the good part is coming. Distributing all the presents with my sleigh and the deers is real fun. When I slide down the chimneys, I often find a little present offered by the children or even a little brandy from the father. Yeah. Now, stop computing and have a good time at home. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Your father, Christmas. That was it. That's all it did. Pretty harmless. But it did send alarm bells to system administrators. Interestingly, the Father Christmas worm did one clever little trick. It deleted the original file containing the worm on the victim system, making it difficult to analyse while the system was under attack. This meant it remained hidden until Christmas Eve, then sent the Christmas greeting to each user on the system, and finally self-destructed. To set the scene for the next worm to hit the world stage, you need to go back to the late 80s. 
it's the height of the Cold War and the military strategy, if you could call it that, of mutually assured destruction. If you can annihilate me, I can annihilate you back. There was an accepted wisdom among teenagers that our futures were being gambled with via this crazy notion of nuclear politics. We had a sense that we all knew how we'd probably die. Why bother with the facade? Why respect institutions which had so spectacularly let us down? It was the perfect environment for anti-establishment sentiments to flourish. Throw into this a mix of new technology where computer-savvy and curious young men could get direct access to some of the biggest unis and military institutions on the planet. How enticing. Be safe and nuclear-free in 1985. And remember, we have a grave international problem on our hands. Something called idiot control the world. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Henry Kissinger is in South America. Midnight Oil was an Australian band which encapsulated this feeling. They were political, loud and passionate, and had an army of young Aussie fans. A few years earlier, lead singer Peter Garrett stood for Parliament. He was representing the Nuclear Disarmament Party in the 1984 federal election. The launching of the Nuclear Disarmament Party represents the dawning of a new age in Australian politics. Heading the ticket, we have Peter Garrett... It's been quite an extraordinary campaign and it's quite an extraordinary political party. In fact, it's not really a political party, it's much more than that. It's a movement of people in this country who have decided that they really have had enough. Garrett mixed politics and music for the next 30 years and served as Federal Environment Minister in the 2000s. That they want to make a nuclear-free Australia. We don't have the biggest budget in the world, but we've got heart, we've got spirit, we've got hope and we've got faith. And they're the most important qualities of all. Their music was unashamedly Australian, a breath of fresh air in a country which usually suffers from a debilitating cultural cringe. Midnight Oil said, we can stand up to anyone. Someone from Melbourne, who was into Midnight Oil, went on to create the first example of computer hacktivism. Although that term, hacktivist, wouldn't be invented until seven years later, in 1996. The US space agency NASA is one of the victims of the Melbourne Computer Hacking Syndicate. American investigators, including the FBI, contacted Australian authorities with their suspicions. I'm Ron Tenkati. I was the network security manager for the NASA Space Physics Analysis Network, which was the uh, agency-wide DECnet network, and also the NASA Science Internet, which was the agency-wide TCPIP network. When staff at NASA went to work on Monday morning, October 16, 1989... So when they went to log in, they would hit the return key, and instead of it identifying the name of the computer that they had connected to, which is just coming out of a text file on the computer, instead, it brought up this banner that, um, uh, you know, was an ASCII banner, so it was a bunch of, uh, you know, arranged characters, but it brought up this banner that said worms against nuclear killers and in big bold letters it said w-a-n-k and then it said your uh, your system has officially been wanked under this banner was a short rhyme uh you talk of times of peace for all and then prepare for war i had no idea what that meant i had never heard that before i didn't recognize that as a lyric and i certainly didn't know it was part of midnight oil You know, me sitting in the United States, I had no idea what that meant. This was a quote from Midnight Oil's song Blossom and Blood from their 1985 record, Species to Ceces. This song reference wasn't the only thing that was a mystery to NASA employees that morning. 
a common term in Australia, brought here by our British convict ancestors, hadn't made it to the US by 1989. Wank. Not a clue. Had no clue what that meant. And the fact that it was defined right underneath it, worms against nuclear killers, it was like, okay, that's what it means. <laughs> so... Um, Learned it later, but uh, at the time, nobody, nobody in NASA had a clue what that meant. <laughs> I've learned that. I've learned that since. As well as the clearly Australian political message in this worm, the date was no accident either. Two days later, on October 18th, the space shuttle Atlantis was due to launch from the Kennedy Space Center. Atlantis was carrying the Galileo space probe and the electrical systems on this probe were nuclear powered. This explains the anti-nuclear message on the wankworm. The folks at NASA were starting to get the picture. The reason we thought it was political goes back to the fact that two years prior, NASA launched the Challenger and it exploded and we had a, a two year hiatus because NASA was working on safety protocols. Four, three, two, one, and liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. Looks like a couple of the uh, solid rocket boosters uh, blew away in an explosion. Obviously a major malfunction. So the, the program advanced, and we had the next shuttle was the, the first shuttle after the Challenger was on the launch pad. The payload for that was the Galileo uh, space probe to Jupiter. And the, the energy source for that probe was what NASA calls radioisotopic thermoelectric generators, which is effectively a small nuclear reactor. It's got plutonium in it. And so the shuttle is on the launch pad. This satellite is inside the shuttle bay. And there's a bunch of protesters protesting the launch of this shuttle because they were saying, if NASA blows up this shuttle like they blew up the Challenger, all of this plutonium is going to rain down on the people in Florida and you're going to kill people. And then that same day, this worm launches and it says it's worms against nuclear killers. Blank. I'm uh, Eugene Spafford, professor at Purdue University in the United States. I've been working in cybersecurity, privacy, uh, and related topics now for over 40 years. And most people know me as Spaff or Professor Spafford, depending on how you encounter me. Hackers at the time called him Spaff, and he was a target for many budding computer geeks. Eugene remembers well the wankworm and its political motive. NASA was preparing to launch a space probe that had a plutonium, very small amount of plutonium, in a fuel cell. And as the plutonium decayed, it would generate heat, and the heat would then be converted into electricity. So the probe wouldn't have to rely on sunlight, especially this was headed towards the outer reaches of the solar system. The Galileo space probe would go on to Jupiter and chart the planet and its moons for 14 years. It made 34 orbits before being sent into Jupiter's atmosphere and destroyed in 2003. 
there were a number of people who were very concerned about the idea of, well, what if there was an accident or an explosion? Uh, what would happen with this plutonium? There were a number of uh, protests and someone broke into the NASA SPAN network and introduced a uh, program that replicated itself on NASA systems. It was the wank worm, it was worms against nuclear killers. There's an often reported urban myth that the wank worm delayed a NASA launch. It made no difference to the launch because none of the systems in SPAN had anything to do with uh, the launch or telemetry. No, it didn't affect the launch. Ron Tinkati again. The space shuttle launched, the probe went to Jupiter. There were no disruptions, systems didn't get shut. I mean, we did take sections of the network offline because that was at the time the only way to stop the propagation. So there was some disruption of the, of the network. It lasted maybe two, three days, and then we were back up and running full bore again. Initially, though, people at NASA thought this worm was very destructive. It was worrisome because we didn't know where it was coming from. It was propagating very quickly because uh, back then, computer security was kind of uh, not well implemented. And so we had a lot of computers that were getting uh, breached by this worm. And it was prolific. It would go through and it was doing a directory search and getting the names of all of your files. And it was displaying them to you on the screen, but it was saying that they had been deleted. They get this banner that says your system's been wanked. You know that terrible feeling when your computer crashes and you think everything's been lost? How much worse then would that feeling be if you worked at NASA and it was two days before a launch? How many penetrations did the worm succeed in, in the end? I, I would say easily 1,200. It, it may have been more. It became evident that it wasn't really deleting the files. And we looked at the infection mechanism and we knew what it was doing. Like the Father Christmas worm, the wank worm was designed to infect the DECnet computer network, the network connecting NASA and the Department of Energy. A report about the wankworm was released five years later by the University of California. It found that the wankworm was malicious code because it, among other things... Self-replicated, self-initiated, introduced back doors, produced unexpected screen displays, altered system files, and had simple password cracking. The wankworm looked only for passwords identical to the username of a given account. Yet despite this, and probably a sign of how lightly people took computer security back then, this worm was successful, and it travelled far. The report also found... The worm would check for systems privileges access, and if found, it would change the startup file executed by the user's login. This change would redefine the DIR command to simply print, no files found. The startup file would also print, oops, and show output that appeared to delete all files in the user's account. This code would not actually delete files, but would make it appear as if it had. You can see why the worm caused panic. A major institution like NASA potentially having all its files deleted. Ron Tenkati. Because it had gotten a foothold into that computer, it was also now running on that computer looking for additional computers. Any computer that was connected to that computer, if it was able to randomly build a, a viable network address, it would have tried to make a connection. 
So the reason it was worrisome is because we didn't know exactly what it was doing. It was propagating like crazy. We were getting phone calls in from universities and NASA centers and the Department of Energy folks. We didn't know how to stop it. Uh, it just seemed to be growing and growing. And probably the first denial of service attack is what this was. When the wank worm hit, being that it was a block of code that was circulating through the DECnet network. So with TCP IP, you have four, four bits of uh, addressing. You have uh, you know, number, dot, number, dot, number, dot, number. With DECnet, you only had two octets. So you had an area number, a dot, and a host number. And the worm, what it did was, it basically was self-replicating code that would take the time of day, the current time, parse that into a random area number, decknet area number, and a random decknet node number, and then it would smash those together. These area numbers are important. Hidden in the 795 lines of script was another political message, one that took NASA a while to work out. The wank worm infected thousands of computers around the globe, from NASA in the United States, Bell Systems and Motorola, the CERN research facility in Switzerland, and research institutions in Japan. But there was one place it deliberately didn't travel to. It did not infect any computers with the DECnet area number 48. Now, the interesting thing that we thought you know, was amusing when we got a hold of the worm, the area numbers were unique to a location. So Washington, D.C. had a specific range of areas. Goddard Space Flight Center had some. Jet Propulsion Laboratory was allocated a specific area number. Marshall Space Flight Center was allocated a specific area number. So when the worm was building these random addresses and it came up with a a random area number, it checked to see if that area number belonged to New Zealand. And the comment in the code was, New Zealand is a nuclear-free zone. It would skip and it would just pick another number. It was programmed to not affect any computers in New Zealand. Genius. And here's the other big clue. In the 80s, New Zealand was getting a reputation around the world for being nuclear-free. Under Prime Minister David Lange, nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed ships were banned from using New Zealand ports or even entering New Zealand waters. This put a strain on the Australian-New Zealand-US alliance, or ANZUS. The US then said it would no longer honour its obligations towards New Zealand under the treaty. That was a big call considering we were still in the Cold War. Then, the following year, a Greenpeace ship, the Rainbow Warrior, was bombed in a New Zealand harbour by the French intelligence service, killing a Greenpeace photographer. The Rainbow Warrior was in this part of the world protesting French nuclear tests in the Pacific. I remember this was a huge story in Australia. People were really angry. Many of us envied New Zealand's ability to stand up to the United States. Our family started buying New Zealand cheese for the first time in support. 
The wankworm also triggered what's called a CERT advisory. When a cyber threat or vulnerability is exposed, a CERT advisory is sent out. These are issued from the Computer Emergency Response Team, or CERT, Coordination Centre. There was a CERT advisory issued on the 17th of October, 1989. It began... This is not a prank. In capital letters. Serious security holes are left open by this worm. And went on to say... This is a mean bug to kill and could have done a lot of damage. With this advisory came a program, an antidote that would defeat the worm. And in July the following year, Interpol sent a memo to the director of the FBI. The subject of the memo was judicial affair on the propagation of the wank worm. It read, Attached is a request for investigation by the authorities in connection with the captioned manner. It's no wonder then that no one's ever come forward. To Melbourne hackers, it looked like the Americans had no sense of humour about these things. I often wonder if the guys in their suburban homes were shocked, proud or scared about the drama they'd caused. Years later, Julian Assange wrote about the wankworm in a 2006 article under the headline, What are the origins of hacktivism? Real hacktivism is at least as old as October 1989, when DOE, US Department of Energy, HEPnet and NASA-connected VMS machines worldwide were penetrated by the anti-nuclear wank worm. At the time, there was considerable anti-nuclear sentiment in the country. The article goes on to detail New Zealand's anti-nuclear policy and the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior. Assange finishes the post like this. Policy has unintended consequences but it should be remembered that some are blessings. So, go boldly and change. The wankworm wasn't done yet, though. There was a second attack. The process name on the worm, which was NETW, was replaced with OILZ. No doubt this was done to get around the anti-wankworm program which NASA had written. It was called antiwank.com, and it killed the worm and vaccinated other computers against it. This second attack became known as the oils worm. And as with the word wank and the blood and blossom lyrics in the first attack, people in the US had no idea what these four letters, O-I-L-Z, meant. To anyone in Australia in the 1980s, it was obvious. It was the oils, an example of that very Australian trait to abbreviate anything. Mosquitoes are mozzies, musicians are musos, And Oils was short, of course, for the band Midnight Oil. According to another early investigation, this one by NASA in November 1989, the worm was a two-phased attack. The first one infected 90 nodes, and the second 500. The report stated that NASA and the FBI were investigating for prosecution, and this report originally traced the worm back to France. Oh, okay, so... So it looked to us like they were developing their attack payload and testing it on this machine. And all of those connections were coming from France over the X.25 network. And then we thought, okay, it's coming from France uh, because the inbound connections are from France. DST is the French version of the FBI, the Domestic Intelligence Service. So, you know, it's your guy's ball now. Um, and, And that's as far as we thought it went. And then we had a meeting at Goddard Space Flight Center with our FBI and I think our Secret Service and the DST sent someone out and we presented our evidence and our logs and said, here, it's all, you know, here's, it's all wrapped in a boat. But of course, that wasn't the end of it. 
And the DST guy goes, well, that's great, but we've got the connection traced back to Australia. It was the French DST that said, no, the hacker wasn't in France at all. They came from over here. So it turned out that it was benign. In the final analysis, this worm was benign, but in the heat of the moment. It was a very uneasy feeling for Ron and the computer security guys at NASA. Sure, nothing was damaged, but it's like someone breaking into your house and moving all the furniture around. The University of California report also pondered who was responsible. The clues were stylistic in nature, depending on the choice of various names, capitalization, and flow control. An analysis of the code seems to produce at least three distinct authors a proliferation author, a malicious author, and an assembler. No one has ever claimed responsibility for the wank and oils worms. It's generally accepted, though, that the worm originated in Melbourne. A book by a couple of Guardian journalists claimed Julian Assange was involved. Indeed, quite a few people have asked me when researching this podcast, have you pinned wankworm on Assange yet? Two individuals told me they knew who did it. The problem is, they named different people. When asked in 2012, Julian Assange replied, Why Melbourne hackers? Melbourne hackers. A subset of the Melbourne hacker community um, was interested in NASA at that time uh, because it was uh, launching a, a satellite which included a significant amount of plutonium. So surely, if anyone knows, it's Sulet Trafus. So the author or authors of the wankworm have never been found or publicly outed, and... I certainly won't be changing the status of that public knowledge about them. (laughs) I will go to my grave with that secret, I'm afraid. (laughs) I've spent a lot of time thinking about life in the late 80s while working on this podcast. I have to constantly remind myself just how different it was. Handwriting essays for school, researching in libraries and heaps of photocopying. Spending hours in record shops, buying records. And never being in front of a screen unless it was broadcast TV, let alone a computer, which now takes up most of my day. And it amazes me over and over what these guys were doing with what was available. They were way out in front, and this is one thing which didn't change, as we'll see in the next few episodes. Following the wankworm hack, suspicion started to fall on a hacker group in Melbourne known as The Realm, and three hackers in particular, Phoenix, Electron, and Nom. Electron bragged about it in the beginning. Naturally, he had to be extremely quiet, because if it gets associated to him, I mean, then the charges would be much higher. The wankworm, the actual, we found related to it, but no code. Next episode, you'll hear from the Australian Federal Police investigator who chased down these hackers. Are they actually um, not just playing around in a computer? Are they actually accessing it? If they could access a computer, get in, then that's when my eyes lit up. In this moment, you know, there was experimentation and a frontier and exploring and no boundaries and no sense of I can't do it. And I don't think anyone 
understood at that moment what a unique convergence had just happened. Are we going to fuck NASA over now? And hear the hackers in their own words. FBI, insert have been called in. I told you I got rude on 40 Berkeley systems last night. I got 40 password files for you. Excellent. It's nice to live on the edge. This is Motherload from Ranieri & Co. Researched and written by me, Greg Muller. Executive producer, Lucy Kent. Mixing and sound design, Martin Peralta. Consulting producer is Siobhan McHugh. And a special thanks to Tism for letting us use their track Wanker from their 1998 album, www.tism.wanker.com. Leave us a review if you can. Thanks for listening. <laughs>